Welcome to Central Speaks, home of our weekly podcast. Central Speaks is produced by Hamilton Central Baptist Church. Today, we're going to look again at Paul's love letter to the Philippians. This time, looking at how he taught them to apply or put into practice his teaching on being a disciple, which he sums up with one of his most well-known quotes. Well, quotes are interesting in that they can be both memorable and also powerful. And they change the way one sees the world. But, but here's a good question. What makes a quote memorable? And then what makes a quote powerful? For example, I could quote parts of Shakespeare's Hamlet, you know, to be or not to be, that is the question. Well, it's a memorable quote, but in my view, not a particularly powerful one. It hasn't changed, for example, the way I live or the way I approach life. The most memorable and powerful quote to me is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This piece of text is quite likely the most quoted piece of Christian scripture in history, and in my view, the most powerful 26 words ever spoken. But then we can think of other quotes that are inspirational, such as William Carey's expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And, and then some quotes just resonate personally. They, they give breath to a feeling. They, they're not ones you want to trumpet from the rooftops, but quietly affirm how you see yourself and therefore actually encourage and affect you, particularly when you're going gets tough. For example, Another of William Carey's, not often seen adorning the walls of aspirational Christian institutions, but a particular favourite encouragement of mine is this. If he give me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond that will be too much. I can plod, I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this, I owe everything. Well, and then there is the quote that inspires and challenges. It sums up, for example, a lifestyle, a sense of purpose. It sets direction and goal and in the same breath challenges all that you have and defines all that you are asked to give. For me, Paul sums up his teaching of being a disciple with one of these quotable quotes. When in Philippians 1.21, he says, For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Twelve words. Twelve words that sum up Paul's masterclass on applying what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's this sentiment I want to talk about today, and how this continues Paul's teaching on being a disciple and what it means to have the same mindset as Christ in our relationships with one another. To begin, let's look at that quote in context. Paul is writing to his beloved church in Philippi, a church that was founded in this most Roman of cities. As Paul waits for his trial before Caesar, and most probably his death from his prison in Rome, he writes this. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, 
Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Well, last week, we looked at how Paul spoke to the church in a way that was counter-cultural and would have challenged the Roman mindset of the day. He described in Philippians 2, from verse 6 to 11, how Jesus gave up all power and prestige, all rights and entitlements to take on the lowest imaginable position in Roman society, a slave. And then he suffered a slave's death on a cross. And it was in this description of what Christ Jesus did for us that Paul crafts his master class on being a disciple. He sets that out as the model of what it means to be a Christ follower, to be willing to put aside all sense of position and power, sense of entitlement and self-seeking, and instead to live in unity, exercising humility and self-sacrifice in the service of others, especially others that are powerless. The outcome of that sort of discipleship, Paul asserts, is the promise that Jesus as the Son of God will be known throughout all the world, in fact, throughout the universe, and that all will come to acknowledge him as Lord. Well, with this in mind, let's look at putting that understanding of the mind of Christ into action. When Paul taught the Philippians about being a disciple, about about what it means to apply the mind of Christ to being a disciple in their relationships with others, he not only wanted them to understand it, but he also wanted them to apply it in their everyday lives. To help them apply this understanding, first, he gave them instructions on what to do so that they could see the big picture. He set out the pattern, the model, and he explained what they should be trying to achieve. And then he followed this up with several real-life examples. He followed up on theory with case studies of what having the mind of Christ in your relationship with others looks like. And then to finish, he added in one more example. And this time, it's an example where things are going wrong. And he invites them to put into practice all that he's taught them. Now, just a quick aside on Paul's teaching methodology here. Do you realize it's on a par with the best educational practice that's used at Harvard? Teach the theory, make sense of the theory using case studies, and then put it into practice in another case study. And Paul did this 2,000 years ago. As an educator, I really look forward to spending time with Paul in heaven. I've got so many questions. Well, so first off, the theory. In Philippians 2, Paul instructed the Philippians, do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. 
Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Paul begins with the command. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. In other words, let your behavior be free of complaint, displeasure, murmuring, behind the scenes talk or disputes. The word translated as grumbling in the text is found elsewhere in scripture, particularly in the Old Testament when the when Israel was grumbling in the wilderness. It's found again in the New Testament in places like in Luke 9, in the context of the interpersonal disputes where the disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest. Well, then Paul gives us the reason for acting without grumbling so that we may be, remain pure and blameless. The language he uses refers to the idea of not mixing and mingling, such as describing undiluted wine or, or unalloyed metals in the time. When applied in the context about people, it conveyed the idea of simplicity of character or purity or guiltlessness and innocence. In a spiritual sense, he calls us to be uh, in a state of moral innocence and refers back to our state before the fall in Eden. And then Paul shows us why this is important. He emphasizes the importance of this purity and innocence in our relationships with one another so that the Philippians can be a testimony before an unbelieving world. Paul here moves the emphasis from being about the moral state of the individual to its application and implication into the whole community as we relate together, focusing on the Philippian church's public testimony. If we want to share the gospel with communities around us, the way we talk with each other is important. Paul's description of the need for purity in relationships has connections with the same theme in the Old Testament. His description has shadows of Deuteronomy 32.5 running through it, where it says, they are corrupt and not his children to their shame, and they are a warped and crooked generation. Paul applies this Old Testament description of Israel to the current situation in Philippi. And for those from a Hebrew background, this would certainly have made the connection. Paul then layers one more thought into the model, the goal of the command, which is to shine among them like stars in the sky. Again, for those with a Hebrew background, the ripple of Daniel 12 verse 3 would be felt. There it says, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul points to the whole reason for the call to unity as disciples of Christ to be lights among the people of this world. He calls his Philippian brothers and sisters through their relationships with one another, being modeled on Christ to shine among their pagan neighbors in the same way that stars shine in the night sky. This is the goal to be so countercultural, expressing Jesus in every interaction that people cannot help but see and hear the gospel being played out among them every day. And then, Paul having taught the theory, uh, the reason, the importance, and the goal, then follows up with a series of case studies which help the Philippian believers make sense of his teaching. And first up, there's the case study of Timothy. Paul writes this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, 
that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Paul presents Timothy as a godly example, as the way the Philippians should imitate Christ. He describes Timothy as someone who lives his life enslaved to the gospel, explaining that in his group of around 15 co-workers uh, in the mission, he has no one else quite like Timothy. Timothy is described as being of like mind in the pursuit of partnering in the sharing of the gospel with the Philippians. Timothy is fully committed, putting the needs of the Philippians first. And Paul contrasts Timothy to others, saying that everyone else looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. In this statement, Paul identifies the very center of what acting out being a disciple of Jesus means. Paul here defines what it means to have the mind of Christ in our relationships with others. He's showing that to be a disciple of Jesus, we must be prepared to turn our natural desires on the head, to be countercultural and to look after the interests of Christ and the gospel in preference to our own interests. Then secondly, Paul gives us the example of Epaphroditus. In Philippians 2, 25 to 30, Paul writes this. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and, and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Epaphroditus was a, a citizen of Philippi who had been sent along with a group of traveling companions to Paul, carrying a gift of money to support him and his ministry along, no doubt, with letters and information from the church. It seems he became very sick on the journey and almost died. As Paul writes to his fellow Philippians, he takes another opportunity to point out what being a true disciple of Jesus is like. He begins by honouring Epaphroditus for his sacrifice, which went to the point of death to serve the spreading of the gospel. When you look carefully at the way Paul introduces the passage, you can see that the same honour structure pattern so often used in the culture of the time, the, the honours race or cursus honorum. Paul honours Epaphroditus with five titles, brother, co-worker, soldier, messenger and carer. And he instructs the Philippians to honor him as well. Paul draws upon the use of this honor discourse of the Roman world, showing that Epaphroditus is to be publicly esteemed for risking his life in the service of a crucified Messiah. 
In the culture of the time, this represents an utter inversion of the dominant social values. Again, Paul presents a countercultural picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. In this picture, Paul shows the honor is due to citizens of God's countercultural community. They deserve to be looked up to and appreciated for what they do. The difference is again in the countercultural expression. Epaphroditus is honored for behavior that would have been seen as ludicrous by the dominant culture, in this case, risking his life in the service of a crucified Messiah. To finish the case study, Paul exclaims that Epaphroditus nearly died. He enforces this detail to highlight God's part in it all. God acted with mercy in healing Epaphroditus. In the context of the Roman world, surviving a life-threatening illness was very uncommon. Paul's explanation highlights the wonder of God's mercy and gives God all the glory for Epaphroditus' recovery and presents him, the disciple, as an imitator of Christ. And then there's the third case study, which this time is in the negative. This case puts before the Philippians the perfect opportunity to apply what Paul has been teaching. Two of the church members are definitely not in unity, not expressing the mind of Christ in their relationship with one another, and certainly not expressing humility and self-sacrifice towards each other. It seems two people in the church have an unresolved issue. Ayodhya and Synthache are in some sort of conflict with one another. In the words we use nowadays, they're out of relationship with each other. And Paul tells it like this. I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul identifies that these two women have a break in relationship and he urges them strongly to put aside their differences and to take on the same mind as Christ, to be like-minded in Christ. Interestingly, Paul doesn't take sides. He takes great care in his writing to address both equally with no hint of one being in the right and the other being in the wrong. Moreover, he introduces the issue by honoring both of them. He reminds the Philippians that these two women were both valued members of the community who had worked alongside him in the work of the gospel. Paul considered the break in relationship serious enough to directly address the issue and to name them both. It's likely these two women were prominent members of the community, perhaps even two church leaders, for example, patrons of house churches. Well, we've no direct record of what the disagreement was about, but more than one biblical scholar has mused at the issue being about power, struggling to expand, for example, their spheres of influence. Well, whatever the issue was, Paul addressed it directly, indicating it was serious, perhaps serious enough to cause a potential split in the church. His plea for them is to have the same mind in the Lord, submitting their own plans to the Lord's, and by so doing, recognizing their oneness in the Lord. In this account, he says no more, but elsewhere in Scripture, such as in Matthew 18, we are given sound advice on how to approach situations where people are out of relationship. So Paul 
teaches the theory of being a disciple and living in unity and the reason for that so that we can shine like stars in the community around us. He provides case studies of what that looks like and a case study to go away and to solve, to show that they've got it right. But he doesn't leave it there. One of the most often used education quotes I hear is by George Bernard Shaw. Uh, it goes like this, those who can do and those who can't teach. It's usually used by parents as they critique their children's teachers. But back to Paul. In my view, Paul is quite the opposite to Shaw's summation of teachers. For Paul, he not only teaches about how to be a disciple, he lived it in his own life. He lived a counter-cultural existence focusing on living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul waited in Rome, looking back on all that he had done in his life, he summed it all up in 12 words. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This sums up what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Paul's whole life, since his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, was spent counterculturally building towards this statement of what it means to put faith into action. Being a disciple is applying the mind of Christ, emulating Christ's life and sacrifice in whatever situation we find ourselves in. So here are 12 words to model our understanding and our actions of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Are we like Timothy and Epaphroditus, brave enough to follow these words? And what about when we find ourselves in conflict with someone else in the church? Are we humble enough to put aside our differences and seek to reconcile, to take on the same mind as Christ, and in doing, help speed the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a waiting world? For Paul, a disciple of Jesus Christ, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Thanks for joining us this week online. Come join us on Sunday mornings too if you're in Hamilton. Find out more about Hamilton Central Baptist Church and discover ways to get involved at www.hcbc.nz. Join us again next week at Central Speaks. <laughs>